Let's pray together. God, once again, we love you, and we just can't pray enough and thank you enough for your love and for your presence. God, thank you again for this time that we have. Uh, Thank you for your people. I pray, Lord, this morning that maybe there's someone in our presence who doesn't know you, maybe someone who's seeking you, maybe someone who might even think that they know you, but they've been stuck in a, a formal religion. They've been stuck in putting their belief in a prayer or a ceremony, and they've never truly put their faith in you, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray this morning that through the power of your Spirit that you would break the chains, that you would break the bondage, uh, that you would help us to see you fresh and anew, um, that you would help us to leave this place and to go out as members of your body, that we would kick down the gates of hell, that we would rescue that we would pursue, win, and disciple the lost, the deluded, and the disillusioned for your glory. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in a sermon series about the vision of Poetry Baptist Church. And up there on the screen is uh, the unity, or the vision statement. And our vision statement is a spirit-led church revealing Christ through unity and worship. And today we are going to talk about unity. I'm not a great topical preaching pastor. Uh, It's not my wheelhouse. It's not my comfort zone. I love doing more of a text and really just digging in. But I really think it's important that as a congregation, that as a people, if we don't have a unified vision, we're lost. We get people who come in here and they say, well, this is a a nice group of people and I kind of like hanging out with them and I want to be part of the game nights once a month that they do and and I want to kind of maybe serve and and do some stuff and be a part of it, but, you know, the whole Jesus thing, I don't know that that's really for me. I don't know that really being a member of the body is really, I just kind of need something to do in my downtime. I just kind of need a hobby, and I need some other people who are maybe moral, that are ethical, that are nice people to just kind of hang out with, because I I live in the area, and I need something to do, and I want some friends. And I'm not saying that that's a bad start, or that's a bad place, but that's just not who we are. Some of that, the niceness, and the love, and the compassion, and the grace that we demonstrate as the body of Christ flows from the vision The reality of who we are as born-again believers. And so in week one, we talked about being spirit-led. What does that mean? And we went into Exodus chapter 33, and we looked at Moses, who was sitting there, the leader of the whole nation of Israel, a rock star, a stud by all accounts. And he's leading this people, and after the golden calf fiasco, he's standing there, And he's pleading with God and saying, God, don't send us up from here. Don't send us up from here if your presence won't go with us. Because there's nothing that will distinguish me and your people from all the other nations on earth. Nothing. Not our cool garb. Not our locks. Not the way that we dread. Nothing. Not the Ten Commandments. Not the food laws. There's nothing. All that stuff is good. But it really amounts to nothing if your presence doesn't go with us. And then in week two, we talked about what does it mean to be a body? What does it mean to be the church? I'm getting so far ahead of myself, I haven't even clicked the slides. Y'all want to help me out back there? Let's go to the next one there. 
There we go, Ephesians 2, 15 and 16. And what we were talking about in week two was this idea that Jesus died not to create a club, not to make Israel this nation that's really the chosen people, the treasure, the ones that God loves, and then the rest of us, well, we're just kind of the redheaded stepchildren. We just kind of get in by the skin of our teeth. I really love them, and you guys are okay. You're kind of sort of in the family, but as Gentiles, I really love them first and foremost. And in Ephesians 2, 15 and 16, it tells us that no, he did this. He came down. He went to the cross. He died in order to make one new humanity. One. That's all of us together in the body and the bride of Christ. And then last week, we looked at this idea, revealing Christ. Well, I thought revelation was really just in that general sense of creation. That's general revelation, that God is manifest. You go to Romans chapter 1, and you find out that God is revealed, and no one's without excuse. That because of our sin in Adam, that when we look out at the beauty of creation and we see animals migrating and we see clouds in the sky and rain and plants and crops and we see all of that stuff, that that means that we're all guilty. Because in and through general revelation that we're all convicted of our sin and the truth of who God is. But many people continue to stay in their sin. And then there's revelation that is the word propositional revelation. This is God, how God disclosed himself to us. But he didn't just leave it at that. He revealed himself in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus went and he died on a cross for our sins, not to make a bunch of mavericks, a bunch of rogue individuals. He died so that we could be the body of Christ. And so we said, in and through the body of Christ, right? We always carry around in our body, not bodies, Not a bunch of individuals in our body, singular, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed, manifest in our body. And that was last week. And this week, we're looking at unity. We're looking at this idea of unity. I put some synonyms or some ideas that are parallels and synonyms up about what unity is, right? Unity is this idea of being connected. It's about commitment. It's about steadfastness. It's about being indivisible. But there are some other things, ideas that kind of spin off from it. You see in the context of marriage, which is a beautiful picture of who God is and who the bride is. He calls us his bride. And so it's this beautiful picture of marriage that God just doesn't one day decide, you know what, this really isn't kind of working out. It's really not working out, and I'm going to look at you, humanity. You're kind of disposable, and I'm going to go down the road, and I'm going to find myself a new bride. I'm going to find somebody who's a little bit less abrasive, a little bit less offensive, maybe somebody that kind of fits, you know, my mood for the day or the week, my flavor of the month. I don't really want to be stuck with you, humanity, and all of your sin. That's not God. It tells us all throughout Scripture that God loved us so much that we even have Scripture. That God would write us this love story and say, there's no length to which I would not go, even coming down in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, that I would die for you. So we look at all of those things, indivisible, commitment, oneness, and there's one word up there that maybe some of us look at and we say, conformity? Conformity. I don't know about that. 
I'm, a, I'm an individual. I'm a big individual guy, right? You know, like if you go down to Austin or we just recently visited Portland and the kind of the slogan or whatever for the city is, is keep Austin weird. Keep Portland weird. But you ever notice the cities that kind of have that as their slogan, that they're the ones where drugs are rampant and that the homeless population is through the roof? You ever notice that? It's all about this idea of conformity that's really just kind of, you know, back off a little bit. I don't really want to conform, except that in Scripture it tells us that we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we've got this idea of unity. And I wanted to kind of touch on some parts of Scripture to give us a better idea of what God has to say about unity. Not what Pastor Kevin has to say. So let's look at the nature of of God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the first place that we see this is actually in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, Elohim. And the name Elohim, the ending on it in Hebrew, indicates not just one of something. It doesn't just indicate two of something. It indicates three or more of something. So from Genesis 1-1, we have this picture of a God who somehow... And in the Jewish mindset where they still hold on to this idea, no, God says that he's one. And if I start worshiping the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that's pluralism, that's idolatry, that's sin. And we can't do that. We can't worship plural gods, multiple gods. But what we have in Genesis 1-1 and in Genesis 1-26, we have this beautiful picture of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit getting together and you have the father saying, hey, son, spirit, what do, you, what do you think about this plan? This idea that we have, let us make humanity in our image according to our likeness. And you see this idea of image and likeness being connected to one another. What's God's image? And when you think about image, some of us, we, I've oftentimes heard people say, well, you know, Trinity is just a mystery. It's just a mystery, And if I were to stand up here, and I'm not going to embarrass my wife or my kids and have them come up here, but if I were to say, Christine, would you stand with me up here? And if I were to say, Delaney, would you stand with, and Allie and Connor, and all of us were to stand up here and pull Hannah from over in the nursery, and I was to say, okay, what do you see? Do you see one, or do you see plural? And some of you might say, well, I see one. And some people will say, no, well, I see, what, there's six of you? There's Kevin, Christine, Allie, Delaney, Connor, and Hannah, there's six of us but we're one family, right? And so all throughout scripture, God being referred to as one is not as a single entity because if God were a single entity, the one thing that God could not be, listen, are you with me? Listen, God could not be eternally relational. He couldn't. God could not be eternally relational if God were not plural in his oneness. It's not possible. What would God be in relationship with himself? That would make God a narcissist. But see, because God the Father loves the Son, and he loves the Spirit, and the Son loves the Spirit and the Father, do you see it? Are you with me? Is that God, this idea of unity, let us make humanity in our image according to our likeness. It's just beautiful. By extension, what we have is humanity. Because God makes us in their image according to their likeness. So we are, by default, made in the image of God. 
So we're plural. God said, let us make them male and female. And let me give them dominion over all of the animals and all the earth. So there's this idea, this beautiful concept of unity in Scripture. But that's not the only place we see it. We also see it in the contrast. Sometimes, all throughout high school and college, whenever you were really supposed to learn a subject and your your teachers or your instructors, your professors would say, what I want you to do is I want you to take this painter and this painter and I want you to compare and contrast them. I want you to take this author and that author and I want you to compare and contrast them. And sometimes we see the beauty and the reality and the differences in contrasting things. And one way that we can really see unity exemplified, magnified, is in through the depravity of humanity. When you think about the depravity of humanity and our sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? With those little kids, the first thing that I had them do, turn your backs, because we're stuck in our sin party, right? We're stuck in our sin party, we've got our back to God, And we say, I'm just going to go and I'm going to do my own thing. And when we're autonomous and we're independent and we're living for ourselves, there's no unity. The depravity of sin. We just get stuck. We get stuck and we worship self and we pursue all of the things that we love. Put this slide up here that says exit strategy. It's one of the things that we do as autonomous, sinful human beings is that we've got an exit strategy for everything. I don't really want to be committed to my wife. I don't really want to be committed to my kids. I really don't want to be committed to a job. See, because it's all about me and my happiness, and it's, it's really just about me. I'm the God of my own universe, and if things don't really work out, and then we think back and we say, well, how does that compare How does that idea of who we are as autonomous individuals just kind of going out throughout life and just finding experiences and things that we can just milk all of the goodness out of it just for me? And we compare that to God. There's nothing that could be further from the beauty and the truth of who God is in our depravity. That exit strategy, we want to know how we can get out of everything And that's what Israel did, right? The nation of Israel throughout Judges, and it comes at the very end, and the writer of Judges sums it all up, and he says, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. Yeesh. What a picture, right? What a picture. But that's not the only place that we see it. We don't just see it in and through Trinity. We don't just see it contrasted with our depravity. We also see it through the power of Calvary. Through the power of Calvary. If you have a Bible with you, it would ask you to turn to the book of Hebrews. This isn't our focal text, but this is going to help us kind of see this idea of the power of Calvary. The book of Hebrews in chapter 12 Verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews, some believe it's Paul, some think it's someone else, reads, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance, every weight of sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the source of and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. Do you see it? 
Do you see the passion and the desire that Jesus has and the lengths to which he would go in order to reconcile humanity to himself? See, what I find in our sinful nature in humanity, what we do is we want it and we want it now, right? Isn't that true about us? Is that we're a microwave, disposable, Amazon one day shipping. I can't possibly wait until Tuesday to get it. It's got to be here tomorrow. And when the drones come flying over your neighborhood and everybody's freaking out, we're like, that's everybody. We got to have it now. Burger King, have it your way. The hair shampoo commercial that says, because you're worth it. It's all about you. But Jesus didn't make it all about himself, did he, right? Jesus said, I'm going to come down from heaven. When we read in, what is it, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility do what? Consider others more important than yourself. Unity, seen through Trinity, seen in the contrast of depravity, seen in the glory, or I'm sorry, the power of Calvary, and now we're going to look just briefly at the glory of eternity. And this is going to take us to our focal text, John chapter 17. So I'd ask you to give you just a moment to turn there. John chapter 17. I'm only going to read three verses. And the beauty of John chapter 17 is it begins off with Jesus praying for himself and he prays for his disciples. And he's praying to the Father and in verse 20, I'm going to read it for us, verses 20 through 23. This is Jesus speaking. He's praying to God the Father and he says, I pray not only for these, his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, unity. As you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, we just saw that in Genesis, may they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one, there's that word one again, unity, as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may meet so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The glory of eternity. See, we see the heart of Jesus because what Jesus desired the most was to buy, to purchase the bride, with the price of his blood at the cross. And he did that when we look into the book of Revelation and we see that in Revelation 7, we have this picture of all of the saints standing before the throne and the lamb. And it says that they're from all these different nations and tribes and tongues, one body, all reconciled through Christ. It's a beautiful picture that we have. And here we have Jesus demonstrating his heart. In John 17, praying to the Father, not just for his disciples, but for those of us. If you believe in Jesus today, do you realize that it was because of the faithfulness of the disciples? Those disciples who, on the night that Jesus was crucified, that they all ran away like scared little children. 
But after that Resurrection Sunday, and they knew that Jesus really was who he said he was, that they were willing to die for the Savior. Revelation chapter 9, 7 through 8, For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Revelation 9, it's just this idea, this picture of unity in the bride. That's who God made us to be. Not to be a bunch of individuals, but to be people of God, to be his one body, his bride. Unity seen through Trinity. Unity seen through depravity. Unity seen through eternity. Seen through the heart of Jesus, right? Not just there in John chapter 17, but all throughout Scripture. And as we were talking, as we're going through this idea of the vision of the church, Poetry Baptist Church, a spirit-led church, a spirit-led body, revealing Christ through unity and worship. Is that who we are? Is that who we are? Is that the testimony of our body? So that they may be brought to complete unity. Is that us? Are we unified? that wonderful illustration that I did for those kids? Have we turned our back on our sin party? Have we allowed ourselves to be drawn closer into God? And in doing so, you realize that we're closer to one another. That's unity. A spirit-led church revealing Christ through unity and worship. I have a quote up here by a man named Robert E. Coleman. And Robert E. Coleman, in a book, I mentioned this last week, the week before, it's called Discipleship. And in that book, Discipleship, in the foreword, this professor, Dr. Robert E. Coleman, says, something is missing in the life of the church today. Something's missing. Today's institution has this polite form of religion. We show up to church on Sunday and we say, hi, Jim, hey, Cody, Tanya, how are you? But is there real, genuine, authentic unity? Are you willing if somebody picks up the phone and says, hey, I need to ride to church this morning? Seriously, bro? You know, I was kind of in my groove this morning. I was drinking my coffee and, you know, you're really kind of a nuisance. You're an inconvenience for me. Or, Or we know that that's the EGR, the extra grace required person. And we say, you know what, I think this morning I, I'm probably just going to put it on do not disturb. I'm just going to let it go to voicemail and pretend that I really didn't see that. Is that what Jesus did for us? Is that the kind of love that's demonstrated in and through the cross? A polite form of religion but seems to lack power. The power to radically change the wayward course of society. See, we've got this vision as a church to rally behind a spirit-led body, a spirit-led church, revealing Christ through unity. See, we can be filled with the Spirit or say that we are. We, we can pretend that we are a body but really not be. We can say that we're revealing Christ because we've got some cool music, we've got some renovations going on with our facilities, and say, well, we're revealing Christ because we're planning on you know, paving our parking lot. Walmart does that. Target does that. That's not the thing that differentiates us. Are we unified? Are we unified in our love in the same way that Jesus 
revealed his love to us in and through the cross? Are we truly considering others more important than ourselves? Or maybe you just showed up today to say, you know what, Jesus, my life's in a bad way. My life's in a bad way, so I'm going to put my time in this Sunday, like putting my dollar in the Coke machine, and you'd better deliver. Because I put my time, I put my money in. I made an effort. I prayed. I opened up the Bible. I'm not really sure what I read, because I was in Numbers or Judges or something. And I read it, and I have no idea what it's talking about. But I did it. I made the effort. And in Proverbs, it tells us that if we won't obey his law, then even our prayers are an abomination to God. But see, I don't think that's us, poetry. I don't think that's us. I think that when we think about this concept of unity in the days and the weeks and the years ahead, when we think about unity as a body of Christ, I think we're going to think about the love that we have for one another. I think we're going to think about the love that we have for one another and to the extent that we wouldn't go to for other people as members of this bride. And see, people are going to see that because that's what Jesus said in John 17. He said that that unity, that our love for one another, not just within your individual family, but as a church family, that that love that we show for one another, that people out there are watching. When you post something on Facebook or social media and nobody from your church even bothers to read it or to like it, when somebody really needs you and you just say, you know what, I got my own problems. I got my own issues. I don't really need their stuff. To what extent are we willing to go to demonstrate the love of Christ in and through the body? And see, the point today, this is the last slide that I'm going to have up here, is that our unity in the body, or lack of it, that's the catch. Our unity in the body or our lack of it, is our testimony to the world. There's no way around it. That's our testimony. And see, we either have it or we don't. We either pretend or we truly have it. Within the context of a marriage, if I was to pretend and fake that I love Christine, it wouldn't take her very long to figure it out. You're a farce. You're a liar. You put on a good show at church. You put a good show out in public but you don't really treat me like I'm your treasure, like I'm your love when we're alone, when we're with our family. So we can put on a good show, folks, here today on Sunday, but what about tomorrow? What about maybe someone in our, in our church family that's struggling? Do you want to know? Or do you just want to be like the little kid that kind of puts their fingers in their ears and walks around going, blah, 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 blah. Do we really love one another? See, because that's our testimony. Robert Coleman said that there's a problem in our churches today that they lack power. The power to truly and radically transform the wayward course of society. Are we just going to be another one of them? Are we truly going to be members of the bride and the body of Christ? Christ.